0: You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Constantine Kissing. Please note that this episode was recorded in 2019,
1: before the COVID-19 crisis. Constantine Kissing, it's great to have you on. You're a very, very interesting guy. Uh, You grew up in the Soviet Union. You eventually moved to Britain. You forged here a career as a successful comedian. Yet, as a comedian, you've written some very incisive, conservative commentary on the state of free speech and the direction in which the progressive left is trying to take us. Like many great comedians, you seem to be able to fuse comedy with incredible incisiveness in terms of political commentary and social commentary. You've been asked to contribute your ideas on free speech to numerous papers and to television channels, not to mention numerous podcasts. But can you begin by telling us how uh, a survivor of Soviet communism comes to be a comedian in Britain?
0: Well, let me correct one thing you said. It was all great and you, you bigged me up as much as you could. But I'm not a conservative. and my all the better. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and my commentary is not really conservative. This is one of the biggest problems with the position that we now find ourselves in, which is that anyone who in any way challenges the radical, progressive, leftist narrative in any way is automatically right wing, is automatically conservative at best. That's the nicest thing they'll say about you. Uh, I'm not conservative. I've, I have conservative views on some things. I have very liberal views on many other things. I'm, I'm in the center politically as I, th- I think of it. Uh, but I, it, it's, it boggles my mind that we are now in a position, John, that freedom of speech, which is a fundamental cornerstone of Western civilization, has become a conservative value. That is an absolutely insane position to me as someone who came from a society where freedom of speech did not exist. And when I came here, my parents essentially sacrificed their life savings to to get me here, right? They didn't move over. They sent me to boarding school here with the the only money that they had. The reason they did that is so that I could be in a free society. And to think that that happened and now this fundamental principle of this country is a marginal issue that supposedly is right-wing at best. Uh, it boggles the mind.
1: You underscore something that's really, I think, fascinating there, which is that in fact, it's in the past, it's usually been the left mm. that has seen the value of free speech, because the current debate would have you believe that free speech is, um, you know, just a something that conservatives believe in so they can belt up on everybody else. But in the past, those who felt oppressed understood how important it was to them so that they could have their grievances heard.
0: Well, even if you go back as far as slavery in America, the, the slaves who were protesting about their condition were demanding freedom of speech in order to be able to argue for their liberation. Uh, It's a fundamental principle, as I say. Uh, So the idea that we now live in a society where it's the opposite, I think the reason for that is, is actually very simple, John, which is that a lot of these narratives, whether it's intersectionality or these structures of oppression or all this stuff, they don't actually have any logical or reasonable underpinning. And so the only way you can defend them The only way you can defend them is by shutting down people who don't agree with you. Because if you have a reasonable, rational argument, their views crumble like a house of cards because they're not built on anything. They're built on fallacious logic and just assertions without any basis in fact. So that's why I think now the left, the radical left, not all of the left, but the radical left have come to this place where they have to shut down and label and smear anyone who doesn't agree with them because their ideas are not based on anything.
1: So the language, we know it. Uh, the most innocuous remarks about somebody else can be painted as bigotry, as hatred, uh, the doozy of them all, racist, because that's the ultimate slur, I think, to be called a racist. Um, to judge somebody else by the color of their skin is a shocking thing to do. Well, it is. but it's used as a weapon against people who simply want to discuss differences.
0: Mm. So. And it debases language. We had uh, Lionel Shriver on my YouTube show called Trigonometry recently. And one of the points that she made is, the word racist has been used so much and so inappropriately. That is why we now use terms like white supremacist. Because being a racist is no longer enough. You have to take it up a notch. Right. And that's why the word of white supremacy has come back. Mm. And the point that she made, which I thought was brilliant, was that you know in her childhood, White supremacists were people that if you walked up to them and you said, are you a white supremacist, they'd be like, hell yeah, right? That was what a white supremacist looked like. Now it's these people who are undercover and pretend they're not, apparently. This is what we're being told.
1: So in this rejection of our past, because that's what it is, Mm -hmm. I mean, these great concepts of freedom, freedom of conscience, probably the first of them, really. Don't burn others at the stake for holding a minority view. Freedom of speech freedom of association. You can't have freedom of speech if you don't have the right to associate or not associate. Discrimination is painted as a terrible word, but it's often a normal part of living. Mm. You discriminate when you decide not to invite me to dinner, but to ask your next door neighbour. But I don't complain. Mind you, I'd like to come to (laughs) dinner, buddy.
0: Well, you might be complaining after this, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: But to what extent, now you've come from a society that you're Parents wanted you moved out of. Mm. That was Marxist in origin. Mm. It was communist.
0: Yeah.
1: To what extent do you? Well, it wasn't
0: real communism, apparently. Well, I keep yeah. being told by eighteen-year-olds on the internet.
1: Yeah, right. So it wasn't yeah. real. Communism. Nothing wrong with the theory. It was just no, the way it was implemented. It clearly, yeah, because yeah. the theory was hopelessly wrong, and the theory was wrong because there was an assumption in it that people would give their loyalty to the party and the state yeah. ahead of those around them, the ones that they loved. their husbands, their wives, their children, their aunts, their uncles, their community. We're not wired like that.
0: Mm. That's exactly it. They're, they're ignoring fundamental human biology. Yeah. And, and the way I we would evolved. think human nature. Human nature, exactly. That's yeah. what I mean. So the way we evolved to be, yeah. they're completely ignoring any of that. And that's why the theory doesn't work. It might be a great theory, yeah. but it doesn't work in practice because human beings, as you say, are not wired in that way. Yeah.
1: So the, the point to take out of that, because I think it's a very, very important point, is it's not just that it failed because it wasn't implemented properly. The theory is not a great theory. It's not a workable theory. But to to, where I wanted to go with this is where we've got to to understand where we've got to now. Uh, So your family wanted you to come to the West where there was a different, uh, if you like, set of foundational uh, principles evolved over a lot of time, a lot of blood, sweat, tears. We would dismiss it now. We don't teach it. Apparently it's all dark. But you go back to the 20s and it was obvious to a lot of people who were committed to a Marxist worldview that there was at least one major problem. The working class were not rising up. They didn't seem interested. They seemed too lethargic. Uh, Perhaps they'd been opiated too much by religion or whatever to overthrow the terrible capitalist societies that they were in. So you had this push to say, well, we better accelerate the process, find other mechanisms to smash democratic capitalism, introduce communism, It became known as cultural Marxism because the model was to attack the cultural institutions of the West and to weaken them. Family, church, academia, whatever. Community. Community. And then over time, that's morphed into, let's accumulate as many people with grievances as possible, stoke those grievances, and weld them into bodies that oppose everything Western. Mm. you think
0: that's what's happened? I think that's exactly what's happened. That is exactly what's happened. The long march through the institutions, which is what you just described, is a way of capturing power Mm. uh, in a capitalist society. The one thing I would say on that, which I always try to make a point of, there is a reason that communism and radical socialism is making a comeback now, particularly among young people. And the reason is that young people, and Douglas Murray, who I know you've spoken to recently, talks about this as well, If you are a young person today living in London or in the southeast of England or in many big cities in America, I imagine in Australia it's similar. I have some friends there, too. I do have friends in Australia, and some of them are young people, young comedians, for example. And the reality for young people today is that the idea of buying a property in London, let's say, is completely out of the realms of the possible. And if you live in a society where people have no access to the one form of capital that traditionally you would have a chance to accumulate. It's very difficult to expect people to be capitalists yes, in that kind of I environment. I understand
1: that. And I think that's a real concern. Mm. And, and I had a long time in government. I believe in sound economic management. What people miss is that government and economics in the Western model is downstream of culture. Mm. And that's highly significant because I think capitalism has you know, been badly traduced in many ways, almost crony capitalism right. model we have today. Exactly. You go back to Lehman Brothers, mm. the breakdown of prudence, of integrity, so bankers stopped asking what is the right thing to do and instead asked what can I get away with, how can I prosper most rapidly and it ended in tears because unsustainable and unconscionable and economically very stupid decisions were made.
0: Um, But uh, to come back to your point about uh, grievances, uh, my wife sent me this um, experiment uh, very uh, literally a couple of days ago where they did an experiment with a group of women and they put scars on their faces. And they told these women that they're going into a job interview and the purpose of the experiment is to find out whether people with uh, facial disfigurements face discrimination. Uh, They showed them the scars in the mirror. The women saw themselves with these scars, and as they led them out of the room, they said, we're just going to touch it up a little bit. And as they touched it up, they removed the scarring completely. So the women went into the job interview thinking that they are scarred, but actually being their normal selves. And the result of the experiment is that those women then came back reporting massively increased level of discrimination. Indeed, many of them came back with comments that the interviewer had made that they felt were referencing their facial disfigurement. And this is why I think this ideology of victimhood is so dangerous, because if you preach to people constantly that we're all oppressed, that we're all being discriminated against at different levels, that because I'm an immigrant, I'm automatically disadvantaged, that because I have dark skin, I'm automatically disadvantaged, then that primes people to look for that. And it's like the, you know when you buy a new car, you see that car everywhere else as you drive around. It's that kind of effect, which is why this ideology of teaching people that they're victims is so incredibly damaging and so incredibly dangerous. We have to teach young people in particular that they're strong, that they're capable, that they're able to overcome adversity, not that they're victims.
1: It always seems to me that the, uh, the idea of elevating, if you like, people who may or may not have suffered real disadvantage or have been sidelined to a sort of caste system. Mm. And with intersectionality, you can add on to it if, if you have other characteristics. Bowls over the central idea of Western freedom, which is that all are worthy of dignity and of standing because a higher authority says they are. But we mock that idea completely. We haven't found a substitute for valuing one another that's workable.
0: I think we have, actually. The substitute is very simple. If we believe in not discriminating against people, not in the way that you defined it earlier, but in in a negative way, if we believe that people should be treated equally and given equal opportunity based on their skills and merit and talents, that is a perfect solution. And what we now have is because we've elevated certain groups to above that mean, above that medium point. Uh, We now have a society where we promote certain people ahead of others. We have what supposedly is called positive discrimination. I don't think any discrimination can be positive in that way. Uh, So actually, the solution is there. uh, But the reality is that, uh, as Douglas Murray says, some people enjoy the overcorrection. Some people enjoy the overcorrection and the power that comes with it and the ability to shut down anyone and to go, well, speaking as an immigrant, you're not allowed to say that. Speaking as a whatever, you're not allowed to say that. That's power. In a society that tries to debate ideas, that is tremendous power. And people don't want to give that up. They don't want to give that up. And I think that's a big part of of why this is happening. And the other thing is, of course, this whole ideology of victimhood. It's weaponized empathy. It's weaponized our empathy. I'm using your empathy against you. Because if I say, well, look, as a blah, 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 I've been oppressed for 50 years, you empathize with that. Right. As a human being, you naturally empathize. So anything I then tack onto that, I've been discriminated against, therefore we must now overturn capitalism. It's harder to argue against, against simply the slogan, we must overturn capitalism. So it's weaponized empathy. And that's why it's become so powerful and so corrosive, because it's very difficult to argue against. (laughs) <laughs> excuse me, when people uh, project this uh, former oppression, the, their victimhood. And there is discrimination in society. People, Some people are racist, some people are bigoted. And uh, there are groups which have been marginalized historically. And we are now at a point where largely we've addressed many of those issues. Uh, but the industries that they have created around those, career feminism, Career, whatever else it is, those people are never going to give it up. If you've got a successful uh, career as a TV feminist, you're not going to give it up. Yeah, you're not going to go. Oh, look, the gender pay gap is pretty much closed, and in fact, women under forty are out earning men. You're not going to. You're not going to want to hear that. You're not going to want to spread that. You're so going to find another. So, if thing. your
1: status and your power are derived from being a victim, yeah. You have a you great have to incentive be a to remain a victim. You, you don't must actually, remain a victim. You, you, you don't want your victimhood victim. resolved.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Why would you want to give up your power? Yeah. No one wants to.
1: You touched on something that I think is very important there. No one would say our society is perfect or ever has been. What it has had, though, is a unique capacity. Because of the, I think, the Judeo-Christian commitment that lies at the heart of Western civilization. I, I really do believe this. I know others push back against it, but I think, you know, It's pretty clear that we have a commitment to others, that we are obliged to love others and do to them as we'd have them do unto us. Uh, Even we need to love our enemies. You've got that capacity to right wrongs and the objective ought to be to see people who are weak or oppressed or downtrodden or marginalised give them the opportunity to enjoy full citizenship, if I can put that way, Mm. join the family.
0: It sounds kind of catastrophising, but I do feel like if we're not careful, we may find that we're living through the last days of the Roman Empire. We have become so unwilling to maintain our immune system as a, as a, as a culture, as a civilization, which is what what this is about. What this is all about. We've become completely unwilling to defend our values.
1: Yeah. We, well, we despise them.
0: Well, absolutely, we're embarrassed about them. Mm. We're ashamed. Mm. Uh, this. Th- we had a, a debate in this country. 10 years ago, is there such a thing as British identity? What are you talking about? Yeah. What on earth are you talking about? Every culture has its own identity. Every culture has its own values. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and, this, and this thing that, that drives me mad about it as well is, of all the, the things that are terrible that were done by the British Empire and by America, undoubtedly these things happened. But the question for me is, do you think that if it'd been the other way around. If it was Russia ruling the world, As a Russian, I say this, or if it was China ruling the world now, or if the Islamic nations of the 14th century had continued their advance through Southern Europe, do you think that they would have not done any of these things?
1: People in Venice might now be, uh, instead of writing theses on uh, pronouns, Mm. and uh, studying the Quran.
0: Right, and uh, this is just the flow of history. Uh, and as we know, the lessons of history is no one learns the lessons of history. But I think and hope that we can be the first generation of people that pay some attention to it. Because if we don't, if we don't...
1: Who's going to, but who's going to teach the history it hasn't been taught? Or it's been taught through various lenses, yes, grievance lenses. So it's not understood.
0: Yes. That's a problem. Absolutely. But what we have to do is strengthen our immune system. Because if we don't, our civilization will collapse... And there are plenty of others waiting to take our place. Believe you me. Yeah. I come from Russia. I know lots of Chinese people. They're not, they're not talking about gender pronouns in those countries. They're getting ready. So Western civilization needs to defend itself. It needs to defend its values. It needs to remember what they are and then defend them.
1: We're so intent though, on describing, I mean, here in Britain. I, I, I come from Australia. We, we were once a colony. The original sin, it seems, in Britain today, is that it was once a colonising country. Right. Now, um, in fact, there's much that was good and noble, just as there was much that was clumsy and inappropriate, and some of downright evil Uh, things were done in the name of colonialism. We know that. But we just don't seem to be able to adapt it with balance. Nor do we seem to be committed to learning what happened well enough to see if you, for want of putting it a better way, what worked and produced good outcomes and freedom and what didn't work. Because you need to learn from both. Nobody's saying we didn't get things wrong. They're just saying we got everything wrong. And that's terrible. And the
0: question is, what is the purpose of identifying the wrongs of the past? If the purpose of them is to learn from them, that is a useful exercise at a level of the individual, if you look at yourself and what you've done wrong, you can improve. But if you look at yourself day and night and focus solely on your errors and your weaknesses and your failings and you do nothing else, that is a recipe for depression and that is a recipe for disaster. And it's true of the individual, it is true of society, it is true of civilization. Which is why focusing solely on that and failing to see it in a broader historical context it's the death knell of Western civilization, uh, And I hate to be the, do- the doomsayer and, and talk about all this stuff, but it, I see it coming. Anyone who's, who knows anything about history sees it coming. Yeah. Uh, it, it's plain so to So why see. would you
1: will it on yourself? Why would you not try and break the circuit?
0: Well, the reason is that we live in a very prosperous society. We've got nothing better to do. We've got nothing better to do than sit around on naval gaze.
1: And then we're frightened if we do actually step out and try and challenge some of the the stupidity around us, as you say, we get clobbered, so it's more comfortable to stay comfortable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, J- John, most people have got busy lives. They've got food to put on the table, they've got kids to bring up. They haven't got time for the culture wars. They haven't got time to explore gender pronouns. They're just trying to get on with their life as best they can. But those of us who, as Douglas says, the, you know, the only people who are allowed to speak now are authors, comedians. And maybe some people who are rich enough that they don't care about the consequences. Those of us who are in this field, we have a responsibility to call it like it is. And the situation we're in now potentially is very, very dangerous. And the direction of travel is not good. The direction of travel is not good. And we have to do something about it.
1: Now, as a comedian, Mm. it seems that... um, Part of the immune system for a healthy society is that it can laugh at itself. And I think we've also understood that it can teach us a great deal about ourselves. Are you able to operate freely as a comedian in Britain today though?
0: More or less. I don't know if you know this, but <clears throat> I was performing at a comedy club just around the corner from here and some students were in and they saw me, they liked me and they invited me to perform at the university. And when they did, they sent me what they called the behavioural agreement contract which said that in the interest of creating a safe space for comedy, they had a zero tolerance policy on racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, anti-religion, anti-atheism. And it also said that all jokes must be respectful and kind.
1: I'm just trying to think whether there's any sort of joke that could not be potentially caught up in one of those categories.
0: Right, particularly the respectful and kind. I mean, even self-deprecating jokes are not kind to you, right, if you make jokes about yourself. Um, But you talked
1: about British values. It it was one of the things about British culture. Yes. Was that you took in good humour a good ribbing, as we'd call it in Australia. Absolutely. You'd laugh at yourself. You didn't take yourself so seriously that you immediately resorted to deep offence It's It's a sign of maturity. The ability to
0: live for yourself is the sign of maturity. Uh, An adolescent struggles with that. That's why younger societies, including Russia, there isn't that culture at all.
1: No, Russians
0: don't like when I make fun of Russians. Don't they? No. Uh, So the British attitude. Can they
1: make fun of themselves? Well, you are a Russian, but yes, Russians can't make fun of themselves.
0: They can a little bit, but it's got to be very careful. You can't be too biting.
1: Because I remember as a schoolboy you know, hearing the one about Sergi ordering a, a car, and he's told it'll arrive in seven years' time on such and such a date. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I'm sure you've heard it. Yes. And he says, "Will that be in the morning or afternoon?" I said, "Well, what difference does it make?" Well, it's just that I've got an appointment with a dentist that mm. morning. Yes. So I'd rather pick it up in the afternoon.
0: Yeah, I think Richard Nixon was a big, uh, or Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was a big fan of those jokes about the Soviet Union, he used to tell them.
1: Well, I think he used humour to devastating effect, actually. Yeah. Um, So... In the Cold War era.
0: But coming back to our discussion about British culture, I have this, it's not even a joke, I just, I sometimes say on stage that uh, I love this country and I say so publicly, which is how you know I'm not really British. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? There is this... um, I think there was a point when this was healthy but we've now reached a point where the desire to, to smear and play down everything that makes you who you are has gone a little bit too far. Uh, I see it all the time. On, you go to a comedy club and you've got a, a, a guy in his 20s talking about how as a straight white man, he's obviously evil, but... And then there's a joke. And I, and I think we're getting to that point where the desire to be self-deprecating has become self-flagellation. Uh, and I think we've got to be careful about it. And it comes from the thing that we've just talked about, which is a, a fundamental failure to remember your own value,
1: yeah.
0: your own value and your own values. That is something that you have to come back to. And coming back further to your question about what it's like operating as a comedian, it, it's becoming very sensitive. People are becoming very sensitive. Um, I did my show in Edinburgh. Uh, this year at the Edinburgh Festival about that contract and about everything that happened. Uh, and I tried to push some of the boundaries, of just to, just to make my point. And overall, this is the other thing about this, John, is that ordinary people, the public, if you like, are completely not on board with this progressive ideology
1: but they're powerless they feel powerless to do yes and they're busy as you said
0: yes but particularly powerless and this is why people look up to comedians writers authors youtubers whoever who who speak out against this and actually ordinary people feel like they can't say what they think a lot more than i do as a comedian yeah because i'm on stage every yes. night and i yeah. broadly speaking i can kind of can mm. say what i think but if you're an ordinary person, I mean, there was a guy who was fired from his job in the supermarket a couple of months ago because he shared a Billy Connolly routine about religion on his Facebook, right? Uh, one of the things I talked about in my show is, well, let me ask you this. Um, in Russia last year, 400 people were arrested for things that they said on social media, 400 people in Russia. Obviously, this country is very different. How many people do you think were arrested in Britain for things they said on social media last year?
1: Go on. Take a guess. I have no idea.
0: 3,300.
1: Really? Arrested for what they'd said on social media? Yeah. Really? What sort of things get you well, arrested? Well, one
0: example I give on my show is uh, there was a young woman from Liverpool uh, called Chelsea Russell, and people can look this up. Uh, her friend was killed in a car crash, a 19-year-old woman. And she posted the lyrics of his favourite song on her Instagram, the lyrics. And it was a rap song, so the lyrics contained several instances of the N-word. Okay. She was arrested, prosecuted, found guilty, given 500 hours of community service and a fine, tagged. And for a year, she was under 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. curfew. My goodness. In Britain. In Britain. In 2018.
1: So we talk about the Chinese system of social credits. Right. uh, And uh, describe it as the creation of or the emerging of a digital prison. But we're doing it to ourselves voluntarily in the West, so to speak.
0: Absolutely. I mean, so one... we'll
1: cancel people socially if they say the wrong thing on social media. But you're telling me now that 3,500 people were visited by the police. No,
0: far more were visited by the police. Far more. Uh, there are cases just half a year ago, and I defended Joe Brand, a British comedian, over this. She made some comments, which, you know, it wasn't a great joke, but she she talked about this during this milkshaking episodes where people were having milkshakes thrown at them. She said that, well, if I was doing it, I'd throw some acid over them, right? That's, that's not a great joke, but she got a visit from the police on the basis that she was, quote, inciting violence, and they eventually decided not to proceed with, with prosecution. But... He was obviously a joke. She's a comedian. She was on, she was on a comedy program. The context is very clear, right? The, and uh, the, the the defining case actually in recent British history on this was the Count Dankula incident. I don't know if you're familiar with this. No. This is a Scottish YouTuber who made. Um, Okay, so his, this is quite, <laughs> quite an interesting one to explain. His girlfriend had a pug dog, you know, those little yes. ugly dogs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm a gonna bit, get no, in, no, trouble no. Now. Be in trouble No, yeah, yeah, you'll in trouble. You can expect
1: a call, you've offended pug dogs.
0: Exactly. Um, and she thought it was the cutest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. And he wanted to annoy her for a prank. So he trained the dog to be the most horrific thing that he could think of, which in this case was a Nazi. So he trained this dog to do a Nazi salute. Right. He posted it on YouTube to his three subscribers at the time, and overnight, the video went completely viral. Three million views in like a week. He was arrested, convicted, found guilty, fined 800 pounds. Uh, and he is to this what day... What precisely
1: was the charge?
0: Uh, I th- it was hate speech. Hate speech. Hate speech. Yeah. Uh, oh, no. Sorry. It was grossly offensive. He was being grossly offensive. That's, that's the correct legal terminology. Uh, And he, he, to this day, is a hate criminal. When the papers write about him, they're legally allowed to call him a Nazi hate criminal. Wow. That is where we are. And it really started with that. I talk about all of these things in my show, where we are now in a position where, in that court case, the prosecutor argued that context and intent are irrelevant. And the judge accepted this. Really? So even by retelling the story to you now, I am potentially engaging in grossly offensive behavior. Context and intent, according to these people, are irrelevant. Now, get your mind around that and think about the potential implications of that.
1: Well, it's extraordinary.
0: That is where we are. It's funny. Like I said, I was, I was, I, we were chatting before, I think we started. I was having dinner with a friend from Saudi Arabia about this. And I told her, and she couldn't believe it. You know, so (laughs) what does that say about us? Do you know what I mean? And she was like, really? In Britain? Isn't, Isn't this a free country? That is where we are. And that's why, as I say, we have to push back against it and go back to what are fundamental values of civilization, John? What are they? Freedom of speech, freedom of association, as you said, right? And respect for the individual and the rights of the individual. That's not to say that community isn't important, but there's a level of rights that we all have.
1: Well, the point about the individual being important, which which is uh, to me very dear, uh, though, is that if I say I have value as an individual, I have to say so to you. Yes. And I cannot diminish your value. Correct. That's where the community bit comes in, surely.
0: Exactly. Unless, of course, we get to the situation where we are now, where I have more value because my skin is darker than yours. Yeah. I have more value because I come from abroad, and you—well, actually, in this case, you do as well. But you know what I
1: mean. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. But it's Jonathan Haidt's point in a way too. We're raising our children to believe that life is a battle between good people and bad people. Mm. Now, it was one of your countrymen, uh, Solzhenitsyn, mm. who said if it was only if it if it was just as if only it was as simple as that. Yeah. If life was a battle between good people and bad people and you wanted a good world, well, you'd just eliminate the bad people, wouldn't you? And then you'd have a good world.
0: Yeah, but that's how these people think. But that's why we need others to help us along the way. And you mentioned Solzhenitsyn. One of the great things, and I wish everybody read the Gulag Archipelago, not only did he detail the camps, which in that moment in time was Not something anyone knew about. No. He
1: smuggled the books out.
0: Absolutely. That's how they became known. Exactly. But the other point that he details in the book is his personal journey from being a committed communist, from fighting for the Soviet Union on the Eastern Front, uh, and believing in everything.
1: And decorated. Highly recognized. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Uh, From going to that, to the fall from pride the fall from pride when he spoke out, when he wrote some private letters about Joseph Stalin to a friend. And he details, it's a a great scene in the book where he details how as he was being escorted back to the Soviet Union, there was a German soldier as part of their convoy who he made carry his own suitcase because he felt that he was above him. And you can see for the rest of the book this idea of his feeling of superiority percolating as this something that he needs to reassess. Um, And that is what this uh, lack of humility is something that I think as an individual, and I've gone through this myself, you know, particularly when you're young, you don't have any sense of humility. You think you're the be all and end all. As you grow and you mature, you need other people to help you position yourself correctly in society and realize that you are not the center of the universe. And if we have a culture now, which we do, where every young person is taught that they are absolutely the center of
1: the, the center universe. of their own universe
0: Well, they're the center of everyone's universe. That's yeah. the problem. If they were just the center of their own universe That would <laughs> yeah, be all right. I, but the, the problem is, you know, yeah. if, if I am sensitive yeah. to noise No one is allowed to yeah. clap as we yeah. now know from one of our universities which banned clapping.
1: Yes right? Extraordinary. They well, banned clapping. What are you yeah. supposed to do instead?
0: Right. Well jazz hands apparently. Jazz hands. Which of course discriminates against blind people but they haven't seemed to consider that yet. So blind people will come out next. And, and this is going to what continue- What a tangled web we weave. Well, it's going to keep getting woven, if that's the correct word, because I'm predicting right now to you, and check this a year from now, we're going to have conversations about high privilege. Because as you know, 90% of Fortune 500 CEOs are over six foot tall. And there is discrimination against short people. In some, just It's just how we evolved, right? We perceive bigger people as being better leaders, stronger, whatever, whatever it might be. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about attractiveness privilege. Attractive people get treated differently to unattractive people. And we're going to keep going down this mental rabbit hole. I was wondering how
1: you've done so well.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and my uh, five foot seven height has really helped me, John. Um, <laughs> this is This rabbit hole is going to keep getting deeper and deeper. Unless enough of us speak out against it, which is why what you're doing is so important.
1: You mentioned pride. Mm. C.S. Lewis observed that it lies at the heart of every human failing, And he said, pursue humility with every ounce of your energy. But know that the minute you think you're making progress, you know you're not. But we've abandoned that. It's good to be proud now. In fact, at some point we decided that pride was a more valued human characteristic than humility. And yet, if you stop and think about that for just a moment, the people we are most comfortable with and like most are those who are not full of themselves, who are humble, who do consider others of significance and importance and look after their needs and seek to be helpful.
0: What's happened to us? How do we become so blinded? Well, this is where we come back to what you are doing right now and what I do with my colleague, Francis, on trigonometry. Because this, and I know this is why you came back after your uh, days in the desert post-politics,
1: is... I like that. Yeah. Days in the desert.
0: Yeah. Well, I, uh, th- what's the actual term? The bi- there's a biblical term for it, something like the wandering in the desert or something. Yeah, <laughs> Something like that. Um, when you came back, you did it because you wanted the conversation to return to the public square.
1: It's, I don't want to overblow it, I've got to be modest about this. Well, I'm just, well, I, I'm, I'm just trying, just trying tease to tease your pride a, out a a of you <laughs> <Yes. Yeah. laughs> A modest contribution, yes. A modest contribution to demonstrate you can have a civil conversation. Right. But to also get important ideas out there. Absolutely. We get this constant trickle of young people who say, love listening to these conversations, and they love podcasts, a lot of young people now, because we can't get this sort of variety of views at our school stroke, university stroke workplace. And one young man said to me the other day, He'd watched everything I've produced mm. and, and music to my ears. I mean, it my vanity, I have to be honest. But he said, it has helped me for the first time since I was a kid living at home with mum and dad to believe that I could actually own my real views mm. instead of having to deny all the time what I really thought and to say things I didn't believe. Absolutely. Have we really got to that?
0: We have. We have got to that. The most common comment that we get on our videos on trigonometry is, "Why don't I see this in the mainstream media?" Yeah. Why don't we I get see lot this in the mainstream media? Yeah. Well, and why are, don't we see it in the mainstream? Well, media? it's very simple. The mainstream media are dying, mm. and what we are seeing is the death throes of a clinging media establishment that are trying to hold on to power as best they can, which is why. In my experience, whenever I've written an article for, and I write for several publications, it is inevitably the case that I write what I think is a reasonable, well-balanced, thoughtful piece. And the headline that gets attached to it is the most provocative, incendiary thing that you've ever seen. The mainstream media are now the ones who are doing the clickbait.
1: Yeah, yes. They they
0: are the ones who are doing the clickbait. And that is because their numbers are plummeting. They see us coming.
1: And they're terrified. Yeah.
0: They're terrified. Because ordinary people who want the truth or who want not even the truth, just an honest conversation. You know, (coughs) I swear to God, I find myself enjoying people whose views I completely dislike and disagree with if they're
1: honest. So do I. Much more. I find the same thing.
0: And, you know, I actually don't think that's healthy, by the way. I don't think that's a healthy thing for a society to be that way. But if you create a vacuum of truth then any or objectivity or Honesty then people will be drawn to Honesty and authenticity. This is I think one of the reasons that Donald Trump was so successful. He feels authentic He feels like you know who that guy is You know what he says and why he says it even if a lot of the things that he says You don't personally agree with but he feels authentic to a lot of people and in a vacuum of authenticity it's like George Carlin, the great comedian, he said that the most important thing in show, show business is authenticity. If you can fake that, you can do anything. <laughs> right? that's, kind of, that's kind of where we are, where anyone who seems like they're authentic, the prime minister in this country right now, will get a, a, an advantage by having that feeling of authenticity. Because everyone else is a great cardboard cutout politician that you have no idea what they stand for, you have no idea what they are, they've been media trained out of their brains, and they can't ever formulate a thought that an ordinary person will go, yeah, I agree with that. Because it's all been pre-packaged, pre-tested, and it's not real. And that's why people will gravitate towards people like us doing what we do, and that will only continue, and that's why the mainstream media are terrified. They're absolutely terrified. Look at the interview that Kathy Newman did with Jordan Peterson. Yes. I, I can't understand how no one at Channel 4 saw that and went, We can't possibly put this out there. It's embarrassing. But they did, and they got the attention they deserved. But what they don't realize, these people, is it's one time attention. You watch that interview, and you will never watch an interview with Catherine Newman again.
1: Comedy is surely the art that really goes to the human condition. What is it that's unique about? comedy that lets it cut through to who we really are.
0: The point of comedy is to cut through the bullshit. It's to cut through all the things that we pretend to believe and get to what we actually believe. That's why your most memorable moment from comedy will always be <clears throat> listening to someone talking about something that you think but you don't realise you think.
1: Yeah. Right? yeah, take the point. That, that's
0: how it always works. And I actually, myself, am uh, more, more interested in satire than comedy, and there's, there's quite a difference between the two. Uh, my good friend Andrew Doyle is a big fan of a quote from someone who I can never remember, which is that comedy is kind and pessimistic, and satire is angry and optimistic. In other words, comedy is about accepting the world as it is and being kind about it, making it okay to, to laugh at whatever the human condition may be. Where satire, which is what I lean into more, uh, is angry and optimistic. It's angry because it's not happy with the way the world is.
1: yeah,
0: And it's optimistic because it believes things can change. Things can
1: change, yeah.
0: Got it. And I am much more interested in satire. And the reason is, coming back to the Soviet Union very much, we didn't have satire in the Soviet Union. We did not have satire in the Soviet Union. In Stalinist Russia, if you made a joke, even privately, that got passed down to the authorities, you would be killed. You'd be sent to the gulag and worked to death, or you'd be shot. Even in 1990s Russia, when Boris Yeltsin, the first president of Russia, came to power, we had a brief moment when there was a liberalization. There was an opening up. And we had the equivalent of uh, it was a puppet show, equivalent to spitting image. And you guys had your own one in Australia. I can't remember what it's called.
1: Yeah, I remember it, but I don't remember what it was called either. Well,
0: you, I was on I was on a TV program with Julia Gillard recently talking right. about it, actually, interestingly. Uh, so it was the first time in modern history, or it, well, probably in any history of Russia, frankly, where you could see the people in power be brought down a notch and be made fun of. And... I remember as a young boy, I would have been 12, the whole family, and this was true of all my family, friends, and everybody would be sitting down whenever that show was on and watching it because it was so revolutionary. It was incredible. Yeah. The the day that Putin came to power, day one, he called up the TV channel. He spoke to the main person and he he said, you can continue doing the show, two demands. You never make fun of the president. You never, ever make fun of the president. And they had a bunch of other things that they wanted. And the satirist refused. The channel got shut down, taken away from the people who owned it. They were persecuted and left Russia. And the main satirist, a a man called Viktor Shendorovich, has never worked in that way again. Satire is very valuable. It is unique. It is very rare. It is rare to have a society where the powerful are up for scrutiny in that way and are up for laugh in that way. And it's very, very important.
1: Yeah, I admire it enormously. I just wish I could do it, but I can't. (laughs) You're on
0: the other end, I'm afraid. You're the one getting that that, that bastard.
1: Yeah, no, I'm just a broken down farmer. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, And one just related out of that, different types of humour. I I love wit. I'm incredibly impressed by wit. and I wish I we're good at it myself, but I love it when when others are very, very quick repartee flows or humour flows. What I don't like is degrading or profane or obscene humour. Um, I don't like the sort of humour that puts down and destroys somebody else's dignity. Mm. Their pomposity perhaps, but not their dignity. I think yeah. there's a difference.
0: It's a thin line. It's a thin line. It's, it's, and everybody's interpretation of those words like pomposity and dignity will be different. Yeah. This is the thing about comedy is people take it differently. Yeah. And we never know really when we say things, which of them it yeah. is. Is it I something that attacks your dignity or attacks your pomposity? Mm. So that's why I always defend the comedian's right to experiment and play and make mistakes. It's very important uh, because without it, there is no comedy. There is no humor because we never know. I don't know. I'm going to go on stage tonight with some new material. 10% of it is going to be good. 90% of it is going to be terrible. That's how it always works.
1: Wish I could be there.
0: <laughs> I wish you would. not I hope you don't come. <laughs> I'm going to make sure you don't come and I'm not going to tell you where it is. But that's how, that's how it works. So uh, we have to preserve the right of comedians, but actually everybody, to make mistakes.
1: I understand that. And then we need to be prepared to forgive them. Mm. You, um, you're, you're really um, a very thoughtful fellow. You've quoted Benjamin Franklin, mm. the American founding father. Uh, Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. What is essential liberty?
0: To me, it's the freedom to speak your mind. It's the freedom to speak your mind. Uh, Because by speaking your mind, you guarantee yourselves all the other freedoms. If you have the right, as the slaves were demanding, to argue for your freedom, then you will eventually win if the truth is on your side. And you will eventually claim the rights that are owed to you by a society that believes that everybody's equal. You can advance and progress through freedom of speech. That's why I call it the cornerstone, because it's the founding principle right? And if you don't have that, you don't have everything else. Freedom of speech and the things that come with it is the reason that the West has been so successful. Because people since the Enlightenment have been, f- been able to pursue science, study, exploration, because of it. And that is why the West is as successful as it is. And it's a guarantee of our strength. It's a guarantee of our competitive success. It's a guarantee of... Um, our economic success. It's a guarantee of everything. That's why it's essential liberty.
1: One of the things that strikes me as interesting about the current debate, I take your point there, but is that many of the people who are now exposing the absurdity of the position we find ourselves in, which has been driven largely by self-proclaimed progressive members of the left, is that it's people from the left who have been very quick, when they're honest, to show the dangers. So you stop and think of some, comed- uh, some comedians who, they'd hardly be conservative, I suspect, I don't mean them any uh, you know, ill will at all in saying that, but people who are well-known in Australia too, Rowan Atkinson, Stephen Fry, John Cleese, Bill Maher, they've all attacked this emerging humorlessness, particularly by the progressive left. What's going on there?
0: Probably we see it coming. Mm. It's a fundamental threat to what we do. It's the
1: left critiquing the left, often.
0: But but my point is those people...
1: They understand it because...
0: Because they're comedians or because they come from that background. They recognise that without the freedom to explore ideas... And sometimes, by the way, John, to cross the line, this is something that people forget, is we're human beings, all of us. And if you have a culture where you make one mistake and you're done, one mistake and yeah. you're done forever, Yeah, that's not going to work.
1: This is part of this sort of unbelievably pompous self-righteousness no. that now accompanies the idea that we're each the centre, as you say, of the universe, um, uh, that we uh, we just can't cope with the idea that somebody shouldn't have something they said 15 or 20 years ago held against them. And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in this this city makes the point that the washing out of forgiveness, that great Judeo-Christian demand that we be prepared to forgive, and, you know, I mean, I don't know how a relationship works if you can't forgive. How does a marriage relationship work? I have no idea. Because you're going to do the wrong thing from time to time. And you've got to be reflective enough to say when your spouse says to you, you you know, you've done the wrong thing, to say, well, i better think that through, perhaps I have, and then apologise. I mean, one of the and most... then be forgiven. And then to be forgiven. But it's it's a really important concept. I don't see how a family, a community, a society can work if you wash forgiveness out. But now we've made it worse because we can't forget. Everything's been recorded by social media. So if forgiveness is gone, then perhaps you've got the hope that people might forget. Well, that's gone as well now.
0: Yeah. That's why forgiveness is probably the crucial thing right now because, as you say, things can't be forgotten. But also... Uh, You touched on religion, and I am someone who is not. I'm a non-believer. But I can't help but think that what we've created as a society when we killed God is a vacuum that inevitably has to be filled. And when it gets filled, it gets filled by a new religion, which is what social justice and intersectionality and all of that now is. They have priests, they have inquisitions. The only thing they don't have in that religion is redemption and forgiveness. Right. And that is a pretty horrible religion. Can you imagine a religion with no forgiveness and redemption? Where you stray once and you are forever tormented in hell or in living hell? It, it, it's not going to work. It, it's not sustainable. Um, and Forgiveness is, is the crucial thing, which is why I'm always encouraged when I see politicians. You know, Andrew Yang, I see him trying to introduce some of that. There was a a guy who said some racist things on a podcast who got hired for a comedy program and then got fired. And he, Andrew Yang came out and the, it was racism about Chinese people and said, well, I forgive him. You know, people make mistakes. That's reassuring to me. We need more of that. But it's got to be a shift that happens at the level of society. If we don't have forgiveness, I don't I don't understand how this world is going to work. No. I honestly I, don't.
1: I, I absolutely concur with you. I really do. I think it's an incredibly important uh, uh, matter that we're only now starting to think about. If we can't forgive, we can't move on. What's more, we rob our society of many good and capable people who are judged for something they said in a moment of, anger or a lapse of judgment 20 or 30 years before. That's absurd. The other absurdity is that it locks us into a view that you can't grow. You can't become an adult. And I notice now that we seem to think, well, adults have made a complete mess of the world and we ought to hand it over to the children. Some academics have been putting forward the idea that we ought to give children as young as six the vote. Because six. they're obviously wiser than adults who have ruined everything. So, uh, you know, we've we've gone mad. Mm. But thank you for unpacking so much. The value of your perspectives, I think, are enormous because, as is so often the case, you're able to look at it all from a perspective of somebody who's been, if you like, locked into a darker side
0: Well, I hope you keep doing what you're doing. It's very important. And I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And look, all it takes to make the world a slightly better place is enough people who are doing the right thing, which is what I think you're doing.
1: Thank you very much. I hope you come to Australia. Thanks very much.
0: You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.